Well, over the last uh, few weeks, we've been talking about the artisan soul. And a part of this, we've been trying to display uh, different acts of worship uh, through art. Uh, week one, we had the painters up here on stage. Uh, week two, we had the spoken word with Tiffany. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor um, uh, Jonathan uh, did this beautiful monologue. And, and now, today, we have a feather with dance. You see, use of the creative is a natural expression of worship. And it's actually not any different than, than worshiping God with, with song, with music, or, or prayer. And if we do it in fellowship, in communion with Jesus and, and to His glory, it can be a beautiful uh, display of worship to our King. Amen. See, oftentimes people think that creativity only exists when, when there are no rules, when there's no boundaries, when there's no limits. But the reality is, is that, that every canvas uh, has a constraints. E- every stage um, has its limits as well. In fact, our creativity is dependent upon those boundaries. Uh, for example, we, we see in, in God's creation, we see beauty in God's creation because it is doing what God designed it uh, to do. And one of the things that creation does is to proclaim the wonder and and the glory of God. Uh, Several weeks ago, Melinda and I were some friends, and it was a a, a beautiful uh, summer night. And um, we were with some beautiful friends, and of all things, we were playing cards. And we watched the the, um, full moon come up in the eastern uh, horizon, and I was suddenly overwhelmed with the presence of God. The presence of God playing cards with friends. But that's, um, that happens, and maybe that's happened to you. It did to the psalmist. Listen, Psalm 103 says this, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly host, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. You see that the psalmist observes a creation and how all of it is doing what it was designed by its creator to do, and he breaks out in praise and thanksgiving. And perhaps nowhere do we see this more clearly than in the book of Revelation. When John uh, received from God this vision, he was in a prison camp on the island of Patmos. Uh, Patmos was a a place where the Roman Empire uh, sent its political prisoners. And life was hard for the church. The, The church was being actively persecuted. And a lot of them were seeing relatives and friends put in jail and some worse. And so John is trying to encourage his readers. You see, Revelation is not so much a, a mystery book about the end times as it is a, a call to persevere in, in the face of difficulties and challenges. Now Paul or John does this in a strange way. He, he does it in an unfamiliar type of literature, at least unfamiliar to us moderns, called apocalyptic literature. And the word comes from the Greek, and it literally means uh, an unveiling, a revelation. 
It's highly symbolic, symbolic and it has um, lots of visions of strange animals and numbers, so it can be very confusing for us. But, but we see it in other examples of literature, for example, Daniel, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. But then we get to chapters 4 and 5, and John gets this glimpse into heaven. In fact, he gets a glimpse into the very throne room of God. And here's what he sees. Uh, this is um, a fairly long passage, so hang in there. And after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I'd heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second one was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now think what that must have meant to the early church. They get this credible opportunity to get a glimpse into heaven. And what do they see? They see worship. They see heavenly worship taking place. And what is the center of this heavenly worship? It is the throne. And who is seated on the th throne? It's God. God is at the center of this heavenly worship. And so through the eyes of John, you and I, we get this glimpse of what is to be our, our true and ultimate reality one day. That is to be living in God's kingdom, worshiping him in all of God's beauty and splendor. I mean, think what this must have meant. God on his throne, his majesty, his glory, his power, his lordship. It would have told uh, the church in a very powerful way that the Romans are not in control of the universe, but that God is in control. It's not the, the emperor, it's not their unfortunate circumstances, it's not their suffering, but God alone is in control of the universe. And that's the reason you and I worship, 
It reminds us of this truth that God is on the throne of our lives. Now what's also I find amazing is that, is that this praise is, is to be a this spontaneous overflow of enjoyment. Now listen to Psalm 96. It says, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound in all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. What's the word we keep, we keep hearing over and over again? It's joy. Now this is shocking. God delights in our worship. And I can't imagine why he does. I mean, God who enjoys the, the fellowship of the Trinity, God who, who, who enjoys the, the myriad of angels and archangels, God of the universe enjoys our worship. I mean, that's slumming of the first order. God enjoys us. He loves it. Here's the other shocking thing. The scriptures bid us to delight in God. That honor and, and reverence for God's a good thing. You see, for a lot of us, we kind of want to keep God at, at arm's length. We're afraid to get too close to him. This idea that we should actually enjoy God seems indecent to some of us. We think worship is good for you the same way that medicine is good for you. You know? It's not the same at all. Creation. And all of its beauty worships God. And that beauty is reflected in our worship. Others will see in us, will see in our worship, the reflection of the beauty and majesty and glory of God. You see, all through Scripture, it becomes clear that you and I are created to worship and to do God's will. And this does not limit our freedom. It actually unleashes our freedom. Worship, like obedience, is surrendering us to something that is greater than us. To worship means to honor and to submit to the greatness of God. Now, there is an ugly side of worship, and every pastor already knows this. But think about it. The first recorded act of, of worship is found in Genesis 4. Do you remember the story? It's about two brothers do you remember it now? Cain and Abel. And they come to worship God. And what happens? A fight breaks out. And then what happens? One of the brothers gets killed. See, worship can be dangerous, folks. There's an ugly side to worship. Worship can bring out the best in us. It can bring out the, the, the beauty, but it can also bring out the ugliness as well. See, the truth is that everybody worships, and everyone will worship something. If we don't worship God, then we're going to find something else to worship. This was the constant temptation for the people of God in the Old Testament, and it's our temptation as well. And it may be our favorite sports team, or it, it, it might be money or, or power. It might be sex or intellect or science. For five years, my wife and I, we lived in Columbus, and uh, we, we called the horseshoe, we called the Ohio State Stadium the shrine because that's where people went to worship on Saturdays in the fall. I can see you've never lived in Columbus. <laughs> you see, worship anything but God and it will eat you alive. 
Worship money. You'll never have enough. Worship the body. And you're always going to feel ugly. You see, that's why the second commandment is so very exclusive. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, when we hear that word jealous, we, we think of, of uh, somehow this is bad. God is jealous? What's that all about? See, it's a temptation for us to give God human qualities. We hear the word jealous, we think that's a negative thing because we know that jealousy can be a a very negative thing in our relationships. But jealousy isn't always a bad thing. There's a certain uh, jealousy that is necessary for us to protect our relationships. Sometimes when we say yes to one person, we have to say no to others, right? There's this element of being exclusive that's important to guard a relationship. And so to worship God and worship God only keeps our focus on God. It excludes other things that I am tempted sometimes to worship. Think about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. The devil tries twice to tempt Jesus. Both approaches fall. And so the devil takes a a different approach. He says, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Jesus, I'm going to give you total authority and power over the earth. Because it's mine to give to you. Just one little thing that I want you to do. I want you to bow down and worship me. That's a great offer. I mean, think about it. Power, prestige, glitter, status, popularity, wealth. Jesus knew that it was the Father's will for him to reign over the earth. He knew that someday he would reign over it all. There's this problem, though, and that is between that time and this time, there's this thing called Good Friday. And so the devil is, is offering this painless shortcut. No arrest, no humiliation, no beating, no suffering, no cross. And he would be able to bring the, the world together in unity under his rule. He'd be able to, to stop the wars and, and to stop the killings and, and to bring peace. It would make so much sense. What an opportunity. But there's a catch. And folks, there's always a catch when you try to make a deal with the devil. I got a cold call one day from this guy saying that he uh, represented an investment company in Palm Beach. Of course, my first thought was, why is he calling me, of all people? And then he said, well, would you like to receive some information on up-and-coming companies? And I said, sure. There's no harm in reading your brochure. He said, Mr. Rowland, do you think that you'd be interested in investing with us? And I said, I don't know. I, I might be interested. And then he said, Mr. Rowland, how much money do you have to invest with us? And then I started seeing the little web here that, that he was building. And I said, no, thank you. And I hung up the phone. Oh, the temptation that are out there, to get rich the easy way. How much good that we could do, how many people we could help, and all I have to do is bow down and worship. In Revelation 13, John has another vision. It's of a great beast, and he's coming up out of the sea, and it wars against the people of God. In verse 8, it says this, all the inhabitants of the earth 
will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. See, it's true. We will worship something. Worship is surrendering to that thing which we acknowledge is greater than us. God does not need our worship, folks, but we need to worship God because it keeps us aligned with God's will. Worship aligns our will with God's will. Now I want you to notice something else about the worship that John observes. It's pretty intense. There's a lot of praise and and thanksgiving. There's even a little bit of of shouting and there's incense being burned and it's it's pretty physical. I mean, they're, they're falling down. They're casting their crowns before the throne of God in this act of total surrender. And I want you to notice that the worship is kind of noisy too. There's, there's peals of, of thunder. There are flashes of lightning and they're playing harps and, and they're shouting with loud voices, worthy is the Lamb. And so if you were hoping that, that worship in heaven would, would maybe be calm and, and meditative and, and, and you, could, you could stand there as a casual observer with your, with your hands in your pocket, you may be somewhat disappointed when you get there. I'm just giving you a warning beforehand that worship in heaven's a little rowdy. When I said that at the 930, they got rowdy, didn't they? At least for the 930. <laughs> See, that's rowdy, isn't it, for Anderson Hills. I want you to notice something else, that there's a lot of singing and music in heavenly worship. (laughs) Verse 8 says this, they never cease to sing. And so when we sing, when our band sings, we are reflecting heavenly worship. Worship. We are imitating what they are doing in heaven right now. So I want to end up with this question. Who do we worship? And John answers that question for us. John sees a a mighty angel holding a scroll with seven seals. But no one is able, no one is worthy to open the scroll. And so he begins to weep uncontrollably. And then one of the elders comforts him with these words. He says, don't cry, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And suddenly this lamb appears as if it had been slain and takes the scroll and opens the seal. And when he does that, all heaven breaks out in worship. Verse 11, And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Folks, that's a lot. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Guess what? Worship is not about us. It's about Jesus. And he alone is worthy of our worship. One of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, says this. He says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with self to attend to the presence of God. I mean, think about it. How often do we approach God in worship saying, here we are, Lord, 
Now, what are we going to experience? You see, oftentimes our, our worship is not meant for God at all. It's really meant for us. Now, that's not completely wrong. There's a sense of in which worship is for us. But our problem is that our, our self-concern oftentimes degenerates into self-absorption. I don't know about you, but I can become very narcissistic in worship. Too often, I calculate the value of worship in terms of what it meant for me. And we can either evaluate its worth on the we, we can either evaluate its worth on the basis of personal gain or on pragmatism. If I got something good out of it, I say, man, worship was good today. And if I don't get anything out of it, then I say, man, worship was, it was bad today. You see, such a perspective is entirely self-centered. It leaves God and it leaves the rest of the congregation out of the picture. And so maybe, maybe worship is not about getting something from Jesus. Maybe worship is about me offering something to him. What if the true value of worship cannot be calculated in terms of what I take away with me as I walk out the door this morning? What if its real value is measured in what I leave at the feet of the throne of God? Now, I'm not suggesting that feelings are not important. They are. But at its heart, worship is the engagement of all of us, our body and our mind and our spirit. But it's not about us. It's not about our likes. It's not about our dislikes. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our comfort. It's not about what I can get out of God. Look again at verse 24. It says, The elders fell down and cast their crowns before God. Folks, this is nothing less than a spontaneous gesture of total surrender and submission to God. And that's what true spiritual worship is. If you have truly experienced the worth and worthiness of God, then you are ready to give anything and everything back to Him. We are willing to give up control when we are willing to lay down our lives and to truly worship. And that's why worship is the most important thing that we do. So what if, what if next Sunday we came to worship 15 minutes early instead of 15 minutes late? And what if we came in the doors and we checked our kids in and we got our cup of coffee and we greeted our friends and then we went and we met some new friends. And then we came and we found our seat and we sat down we greeted those around us. And then we bowed our heads and we prayed. God, open my heart to you today. Speak a fresh word to me. Give me my marching orders for the week. And then what if we begin to pray for our neighbors around us? And what if we begin to pray for the band up front and for those who are leading worship? What if we got really honest with God and began to confess our sins from the past week and to ask for forgiveness? How might our worship change? And how might we change? Let's pray. God, we acknowledge today that way too often we've made worship about us. 